The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Our Father, we do thank you for the wonderful opportunity we have this morning to gather together to study your word. There are so many important principles and so many important doctrines in your word, so many things that relate to us, and it is such a, almost at times, overwhelming task to renovate our thinking, but we know that you have given us the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide, and that under his ministry we can learn everything in your word that the Holy Spirit provides every believer, regardless of background, regardless of education, regardless of, of intelligence, the ability to understand these principles. And so, Father, now as we study your word, we rely upon God the Holy Spirit to teach us, help us to store these things in our soul and remember them, that we might apply them for the purpose of spiritual growth and glorifying you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, i got another one of these interesting little things on the internet this week. Teaching math in 1950, there's a purpose behind all of this too, so I want everybody to pay attention. Teaching math in 1950, a logger sells a truckload of lumber for $100. His cost of production is four-fifths of the price. What is his profit? Remember those kinds of word problems? Teaching math in 1960, a logger sells a truckload of lumber for $100. His cost of production is four-fifths of the price, or $80. What is his profit? Teaching math in 1970. A logger exchanges a set L of lumber for a set M of money. The cardinal of, cardinality of set M is 100. Each element is worth $1. Make 100 dots representing the elements of the set M. The set C, the cost of production, contains 20 fewer points than set M. Represent the set C as a subset of set M and answer the following question. What is the cardinality of the set P for profit? Don't you just love it? You remember when we had to do that? So those of you who are a little older remember that. If you're younger, you relate to the next one. Teaching math in 1980, a logger sells a truckload of lumber for $100. Her cost of production, her cost of production is $80. And her profit is $20. Your assignment, underline the number 20. <laughs> Teaching math in 1990. By cutting down beautiful forest trees, the logger makes $20. What do you think of this way of making a living? Topic for class participation after answering the question, how did the forest birds and squirrels feel as the logger cut down the trees? There are no wrong answers. Teaching math in 1996. By laying off 40% of its loggers, a company improves its stock price from $80 to $100. How much capital gain per share does the CEO make by exercising his stock options at $80? Assume capital gains are no longer taxed because this encourages investment. Teaching math in 1997. A company outsources all of its loggers. The firm saves on benefits 
And when demand for its product is down, the logging workforce can easily be cut back. The average logger employed by the company earned $50,000, had three weeks vacation, a nice retirement plan, and medical insurance. The contracted logger, logger charges $50 an hour. Was outsourcing a good move? Teaching math in 1998. A laid-off logger with four kids at home and a ridiculous alimony from his first failed marriage comes into the logging company corporate offices and goes postal mowing down 16 executives and a couple of secretaries and gets lucky when he nails a politician on the premises collecting his kickback. Was outsourcing the loggers a good move for the company? Suggested addition, teaching math in 1999. A laid-off logger serving time in Folsom Prison for blowing away several people is being trained as a COBOL, that's a computer program, computer language, a COBOL programmer in order to work on the year 2000 project. What is the probability that the automatic cell doors will open on their own as of 00:01? That's the first second of the morning of the first day of the year 2000. Now, all of that's great and fun and it tells us, but, but what underlies that, and the point I want to make is that, that what that reveals to each of us underneath all the humor is that as education philosophies have changed, from decade to decade, the way in which our kids are taught changes. The one that I think really strikes home, I remember taking what we called the new math when I was in junior high and high school, and it was, a, you know, draw set A, and the circle is set A, and then draw a circle for set B, and then indicate how they overlap and that sort of thing. And then I remember when I taught school uh, and did my student teaching and then taught in the late 70s, and I remember kid, looking at kids' worksheets, and they were sent home, and it was like the problem. The, the logger uh, cost the logger $80 to, to um, uh, cut, the, cut the lumber, and then he makes $100. What is his profit? It's $20. Underline the number 20. And what we see is the dumbing down of education over the process, and this in jest makes fun of that. But a point I want to make in terms of application is that just as education philosophies out there in the real world in education at the public school level have changed throughout the decades. Education philosophies that dominate so-called Christian education have also changed from decade to decade. Because the sad thing is that your average education expert at the seminary who is a Christian ed professor may have a doctorate or a master's of divinity or a master's of theology but then he went on to get his PhD in education at Humpty Dump State University where he was taught educational philosophy and theory predicated on a purely human viewpoint concept of the nature of man and the learning process and so as we illustrated in that series of, of fun little jokes, that there have been these changes in the secular classroom. The same things have happened in the Christian classroom and has affected Christian curriculum. One of the things you see in a lot of uh, the, the, what I call the, the broad-range Christian, Christian curriculum packages that churches buy is that they have done the same thing. They'll get these worksheets. You have a little Bible story you read and you go home and you underline the name of the main hero. You don't have any doctrine being taught. Uh, if there is application, it is more an application towards morality 
than it is spirituality. Because if all you teach people is how to live, that's morality in some sense, is how to live without teaching them the biblical precepts for living the spiritual life which underlie the actions, then what you get is a lot of Christians who run around who are looking good on the outside like the Pharisees, but on the inside they have no appreciation for the dynamics of the spiritual life and they have no understanding of the difference between spirituality and just good old-fashioned morality. And they think, therefore, they have a, a close relationship with God because they seem to follow this external, uh, these external guidelines and, and they're fairly moral people. Uh, education philosophy has really fallen apart. And what we're trying to do right now with the, the, downstairs with the kids, and I know some of you teach at different times and different hours, we're trying to rearrange the curriculum. I personally think that as a church we need to be committed to excellence in whatever we do, that we must maintain the highest levels of professionalism in every arena of activity that we engage in. And I think that one of the frustrations with small churches is we try to do what everything a big church tries to do sometimes. I think that's a fundamental problem. You need to do what you can do and no more and do whatever it is you do well and to the best of your ability. One of the things we're going to do is uh, use the old curriculum that was developed down at Baraka back during the 50s and 60s. In fact, I'm of the generation that we might say beta-tested that curriculum. I remember uh, uh, Bob Thien's wife, Betty, and a lady named Ursula Kemp wrote that material, and it's excellent. And by the time I was seven or eight years old, I was very familiar with a lot of technical terminology like omniscience, omnipotence, immutability, a lot of terms like that describing the character of God. And I remember when I went to seminary and I sat next to a guy who was a retired uh, naval uh, commander and uh, had been a POW in Vietnam and had trusted the Lord uh, through a campus ministry or military ministry not long before that. But he had no background whatsoever and he went to your average church that doesn't teach you anything. And he was sitting there, and the professor was teaching and communicating with, with uh, standard uh, theological terminology. And uh, this guy was just doing everything he could to keep his head above water. So uh, vocabulary determines how well you can think about things. And if you don't have the right vocabulary, and these words are used in Scripture, many of them, words like uh, some of what we're, we're studying right now in Galatians, justification, imputation, dispensation. All of these concepts are very, very important. These need to be taught to our kids. So we're committed to developing a curriculum and an education program that will uh, challenge them. Uh, it will be taught at their level so they can understand these terms. Uh, but they can do it. Uh, young, the younger the mind, uh, the more like a sponge it is. It has an, all this other stuff in it like we have as adults. And they can grasp these words, grasp the terminology. They can grasp a lot of concepts. You can't teach them in an abstract extract a form as you do when they get older, but you can teach them with concrete examples. So we're, we're really committed to this, working on that, using the uh, Baraka curriculum as a core curriculum for one classroom hour, and then we'll develop using some child evangelism fellowship curriculum in the other hour so that the two uh, balance each other. Now, it's going to take a little time to work all this out. We're going to, as soon as everybody gets back from vacation, we're planning on having some meetings with the uh, teachers and everyone to start working through this. But we need to be committed to excellence in all that we do. So it's just going to take a, it'll take a little time to get it all put together, but, but that's what our goal is. With that in mind, let's look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2.
pursuing the spiritual life. Now, where we are in this study of this epistle is that the Apostle Paul has been defending his apostolic authority and his message from beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, and this goes down through the end of chapter 2. And he has been giving various illustrations from his own life to demonstrate the validity of his claim to apostolic authority. In this particular chapter, he began with the uh, second visit to Jerusalem after he had spent some 14 years in anonymous ministry in, at his home in Tarsus. And Barnabas went to get him to help with the ministry among the church in Antioch. At this time, there are two main churches uh, or centers uh, of uh, missionary activity or, or church activity. You have the church in Galatia, and then you have a major uh, church on the move in Antioch. And the leaders there, Barnabas and Paul and a few others, and they come down on a famine visit because by this time there's a, there's a, a major famine going on. It's, we know about this during the time of the reign of Claudius, a Roman emperor, there were several uh, famines that took place that shook the Roman Empire at this time, and, and uh, this was a devastating one in Jerusalem. So uh, the people in Antioch took up a collection, sent it with Paul and Barnabas down to, to uh, uh, Jerusalem. But behind all this, there's a theological issue going on, which we discovered, and that is, what is the relationship? The question they're asking is, what is the relationship of Gentile believers the Mosaic Law. And we saw last time in Acts 10 and 11 that Peter had been given a vision by God where he saw a tablecloth descend from heaven and on this tablecloth were all manners of, of animals and creatures. And God said, take and eat. And all these creatures, were some were clean and some were designated unclean by the Mosaic Law. And Peter said, no, no, Lord, I never eat anything unclean. And God said, what I have made clean, you eat. And Peter finally got the point that there was no longer going to be these divisions between the Mosaic Law, uh, uh, between Jew and Gentile as stipulated in the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law has now been fulfilled by Jesus Christ and so it is no longer operational. But it took some time for people in the early church to really understand this point because at this early stage, the majority of the believers still came out of a Jewish background and so they had a strong affinity for the Mosaic Law as, as somehow related to their spiritual life. The problem with this was that they were saying that salvation was not by faith alone, in Christ alone, but it was by faith plus the Mosaic Law, including and specifically related to the ritual of circumcision. So Paul has to deal with this. And in the first ten verses of the chapter, we saw how he went down to Jerusalem and had a meeting with Peter and James, and they all understood the issues here. Peter, after his um, uh, vision and his ministry to Cornelius, uh, understood that there was no longer going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and the church-age believers were no longer under the Mosaic Law. And then, uh, sometime later, after Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, Peter came up to visit Antioch, and it had been his custom to eat with the Gentiles and eat whatever the Gentiles ate, and he enjoyed all the different foods that he had never been able to eat before. And then there were those from the party of the circumcision, those legalist Judaizers from 
Jerusalem came up to Antioch and Peter began to cave in. And he no longer exercised the courage that he had in Acts 11 to stand up for a, for a grace gospel, but he began to yield and to stay away from the Gentiles and to go back and eat only those foods mentioned in the Mosaic Law. And the influence of his leadership was such that even Barnabas is carried away by this. And the only one who seems to take a stand is the Apostle Paul. And Paul has to uh, confront and rebuke Peter before everybody. A public confrontation. And that begins in about verse 14 and goes down through the end of the chapter. And he says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward, that is, walking in a straight line with regard to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In other words, Peter, if you, being a Jew, can't, can't live under the law anymore, and you can't do this, and you recognize, as you have in the past, that this isn't a requirement for the spiritual life in this age, why is it that you are now forcing Gentiles to do what you can't do? and what you know is no longer valid. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And that's where we stopped last week. And before we get into verse 16 and following, which gives us a very detailed approach to the um, whole doctrine of justification by faith, we need to back up just a little bit and lay a groundwork or framework for understanding the issues here. So first of all, I want to look and expand a little bit of what I taught last week on the doctrine of the Mosaic Law and spirituality. The doctrine of the Mosaic Law and spirituality. Point number one, Christ fulfilled the law. Point number one, Christ fulfilled the law. Completely. The law, to understand what we're talking about in terms of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law is not just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is just the preamble to the Mosaic Law. It gives a basis for morality and freedom within the nation, and it is for believers and unbelievers. So it does not lay down the basis for any kind of spirituality. The emphasis there is on morality. And it doesn't even establish any of these particular actions as criminal. They're already criminal. They've been criminal since man fell from the garden. Murder, lying, idolatry, all of these things. I remember the first time I taught this in a church people had never heard this before. They had been so ingrained that the Ten Commandments established all of this. But murder, adultery, lying, false, bearing false witness, all were sins and wrong prior to this. The whole document of the Mosaic Law is comparable to our Constitution. It provides the legislation, the, the uh, branch of, of legislation for the Mose- uh, for, for the Israelites, for the Jews. It is their whole judicial system, their whole body of law for governing the nation, which is made up of both believers and unbelievers. Secondly, the second part relates to uh, 
political regulations and laws governing the day-to-day function of people within the nation. The third division of the Constitution, I mean of their uh, of the Mosaic Law, relates to spiritual truth. And that has to do with the sacrifi- sacrificial system, the Levitical offerings, the tabernacle, all of the ritual that is laid down in the Mosaic Law that we usually think of, which has to do with teaching or foreshadowing, teaching shadow doctrines about the person and work of Jesus Christ, which we call Christology, and principles about salvation, which we call soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, and principles on living the spiritual life as it was defined in the Old Testament on sanctification. This was all done through sacrifices and offerings and ritual. It's very concrete. It's done through these sort of teaching aids in order that people can understand them more clearly. Remember, they do not have the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. They are not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. So the doctrines that they are taught are very basic, very fundamental, and they are communicated in a very clear, precise, basic way through visual pictures to help enable them to understand these things. All of the law foreshadowed in this arena foreshadowed the person and work of Jesus Christ so that when Christ came, He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of these uh, this foreshadowing and paid the price for our salvation. For example, in the tabernacle, you have furniture constructed of wood and then covered with gold. This is a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ and the deity of Christ. You have the person of the high priest. He is a picture of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is called typology. A type is an example that foreshadows certain things that will come about in the future. Jesus, The high priest of Israel foreshadows the work of the high priest of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of the lamb that is without spot or blemish is a type or foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ who is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ was perfect. The impeccability of Christ. He was sinless. He never sinned. That is illustrated by the Lamb that is without spot or blemish. The sacrifice, the shed blood, is a picture of death. It is a picture of physical death when it, which itself illustrates spiritual death. The penalty for sin is not physical death. It is spiritual death, which has as its consequence physical death. But the issue is spiritual death. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not His physical death that paid the penalty for our sins, but His spiritual death, those three hours of separation on the cross when He was separated from God the Father and God the Father imputed to Him all the sins of human history so that they were paid for completely by Him. And then he said, it is finished. And then he died physically. His, death, his physical death was simply a, an illustration of the fact that he had died, already died spiritually, and accomplished the work of salvation. So Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Point number two. Therefore, Christ is the end of the law for believers. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That tells us, if Christ is the end of the law, what for righteousness? That the law cannot yield righteousness in any way, shape, or form. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Now, we will learn, one of the reasons we're going through this is sort of foreshadowing. We're going to cover three or four doctrines today and next week that will just start to lay the framework for understanding what will come in the next three or four chapters of Galatians. There will be a lot of discussion about law. There will be a lot of discussion about uh, the role of the spiritual life and the relationship of law and the spirit. There will be a lot of discussion about things like dispensations and covenants and imputation and justification. So we need to just outline this in, in, a, in a very general way this morning and then we will build on these doctrines as we go through the Scriptures. So law cannot produce righteousness. This is what God requires. In the character of God, we have the fact that God is absolute perfect righteousness. This is the standard of God's integrity. God is also perfect justice. This is the application of God's integrity. And then God is perfect love. And this is the motivation of God's integrity. These three characteristics of God's essence, these three are, make up the integrity of God. Now, I use the word integrity because that's a, uh, I think it's a stronger word than the uh, word that we normally are associated with biblically is the word holy. Holy carries with it a lot of baggage, religious baggage, that the average person really doesn't understand very well. So instead of using holiness, which tended to refer just to righteousness and justice, we'll use the word integrity, the integrity of God. So when we look at these three aspects, we can say that what the righteousness of God approves, then the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. That's the relationship between the standard and the application. The righteousness provides the absolute criterion by which God evaluates everyone. That's the standard. So if the righteousness of God approves something, then the justice of God, in terms of its of application, will bless that person. This is motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. And grace is an expression of the uh, essence of God. It is not an attribute in the essence of God, so it's outside the circle of, uh, of God's integrity. Now, what the righteousness of God rejects, and when God looks at man, man is minus R. He lacks righteousness. He cannot measure up to the absolute standard of God. So what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But the love of God provided a solution expressed through the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, because the law cannot produce plus R. The law, in fact, is nothing more than a schoolmaster. And we will get to that, a pedagogue. That's the Greek word that we'll get to in about Galatians chapter 4. The law today functions as a schoolmaster. In other words, the law simply points out the fact 
you can't live up to that perfect, absolute standard. Therefore, since you can't meet that standard, someone else must meet it for you. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the law has no relationship to the believer in this age. Galatians 5.18 But if you are led by the Spirit, and you are if you are a believer, that's a first-class condition in the Greek, which means but if, and it is assumed that you are uh, led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Can't be any more clear than that. Point number three. But as believers in the church age, just because we are not under the Mosaic law does not mean we are lawless. We are not lawless. Lawless is antinomianism. It's amazing how many people, how many theologians think that if you teach grace, when you're really teaching grace, you're just teaching antinomianism because, man, if, if people can really continue to sin after salvation just as much as they did before salvation and they won't lose their salvation and people just might take advantage of that. Well, yes, they just might. That's not wrong. I mean, they would be wrong if they did that, but that's not a wrong theological deduction. That's what grace means. Grace means it's a free gift. It's not dependent upon what, uh, what we do. It's dependent upon what God does. And Paul addresses this after his theological discussion of reconciliation in Romans 5. The conclusion is, and he asks the, the, the question, what shall we say then? Should we continue to sin so grace can abound? No! Very strong Greek language. No, not at all. You can't go to that. That's an illegitimate deduction from the premises of grace. What you have to do is, is trust God. Uh, you can sin, but you will be forgiven, but there will still be consequences in terms of divine discipline. We are not lawless. We have a new law, a higher law, a supernatural law, Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Notice that it's a law related to the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, that is the Mosaic law, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that the spiritual life, the life of the church age believer is based on the Holy Spirit, not the Mosaic law. And notice there's a contrast here. First, it's between the law and the Spirit, and then it is between the flesh and the Spirit. Because some can keep perhaps a large amount of the Mosaic Law simply in the power of the flesh, which is the sin nature. A term representing the sin nature because it ultimately resides in the genetic structure of the body. The sin nature, that proclivity and propensity to sin that we all have. The flesh versus the spirit. The flesh can, to a large degree sometimes, fulfill the law or make it seem like we do, but the Holy Spirit is above and beyond that. So we say that this, the spiritual life is a supernatural way of life that can only be fulfilled through a supernatural basis. It cannot be fulfilled through a natural basis. Point number four. The new law is accompanied by a new commandment. The new law, the law of the Spirit, has a new commandment and that new commandment is found in Ephesians 
be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. This is the first power option in the Christian life. The second power option is the Word of God. Bible doctrine. The Holy Spirit works in tandem. These two go together. You can't have one function without the other. The Holy Spirit without doctrine is... Well, it doesn't happen, but when people think that way, that's nothing but mysticism. Bible doctrine without the Holy Spirit, well, that's nothing more than legalism. So you have to have the two working together in the unique spiritual life of the church age. And the commandment there is to be filled by means of the Spirit. And what does He fill us with? He fills us with Bible doctrine. We've been studying this uh, on Wednesday night in James, just exactly how this takes place and how it fortifies our soul so that we can handle the tests and adversities of life. Point number five. The purpose of this new law is to glorify Christ and to produce His character in believers by means of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a process here. The process is not the end result. The process is how you get to the end result. The problem with a lot of, pe- a lot of times we get so focused on the process, we think that's the end result. The end result is not learning doctrine. The, er- the bottom line is not assimilation of doctrine as epinosis. The bottom line is assimilation of doctrine as epinosis so that we can apply it in our lives on a day-to-day basis which produces spiritual growth which in turn produces or transforms our character into the reflecting the character of Christ, which in turn glorifies God. Okay? That's the process. We learn doctrine, and we believe it, and the Holy Spirit transfers it from the left lobe of our soul, the thinking of our soul, the uh, gnosis doctrine, which is the staging area, and it's transferred to the right lobe of the soul, the heart or cardia, Uh, There it becomes epinosis doctrine. The purpose there is application for spiritual growth and the result of that is that Christ's character is formed in us with the end result that we glorify God. That's the end result. Glorifying God in the angelic conflict. Uh, Galatians 4.19 says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And that's what that passage is talking about and we will, when we get there, discuss how the character of Christ is formed in you. Now that passage isn't teaching the indwelling ministry of Christ. A lot of people make that mistake. Christ is formed in you. That's Christ indwells every single believer. That passage is talking about a process and it's the production of the character of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Okay, point number six. Point number five was the purpose of the law is to glorify Christ and produce His character in believers by means of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 4.19. Point number six, the Holy Spirit is the one who glorifies Christ in the spiritual life. John 16.14, Jesus said, He, speaking of the Holy Spirit who would come, He shall glorify Me, for He shall take of Mine and shall disclose it to you. John 7.39 says, But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. So at that time it was yet future. Now it's past. 
for we are in the church age. But this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So once Jesus was glorified with the resurrection, ascension, and his present session in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit was then sent on the day of Pentecost, which began the present church age. And so this is, in one sense, the age of the Holy Spirit, because it is the unique age of, of uh, the, ch- the unique church age with a unique spiritual life. So the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ, and the only way He can glorify Christ is by pr- producing the character of Christ in the believer. The only way the character of Christ is produced in the believer is when they exercise their volition to grow spiritually through the application of doctrine. That's the process. The Holy Spirit just doesn't take over tweak your volition from negative to positive so that somehow it's just going to happen. You have to make hard decisions on a day-to-day basis that you're not going to worry. You're going to confess your sin and you're going to put it in the Lord's hands, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you and you're not going to worry. You're not going to uh, worry about whatever failures may have occurred in your past. You're going to isolate those sins, confess them, and move forward. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, you're going to be looking forward, not looking backward. What's past is past. Whatever the problems or sins were, God took care of them on the cross. And now the issue is to go forward in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to point number seven. The glorification of God takes place inside the believer first. It is internal first, then external. Problem with most Christianity is it focuses on some kind of external behavior, outside production, get involved with the church, teach Sunday school, give, pray, get involved in some kind of discipleship program, whatever it may be. The issue is on external activities and external production rather than internal growth. And I would rather pastor a church where you had a bunch of baby believers and let them grow internally. Painful as that is, just like having a whole nursery full of babies, painful as that is and not do anything, not even have a Sunday school program because you don't have anybody mature enough to teach kids Sunday school. And let them grow and wait until they have some doctrine in their soul and some maturity under their belt before you start doing anything else because otherwise you end up in some kind of a works-oriented external program where you're just doing things to do them and they are not the production of the Holy Spirit They are the production of the flesh. And that is the road to legalism and superficial Christianity. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the emphasis there is on the dwelling of the Holy Spirit who sets up a temple in your soul for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ indwells you from the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation constructs His temple within you where Jesus Christ indwells and He glorifies you as the character of Christ then as a byproduct of your spiritual growth uh, develops, then you glorify Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price that's redemption. The doctrine of redemption that you have been bought with a price your sins were paid for. The price was the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. That's a command, a mandate in the spiritual life. If you are a believer, therefore glorify God in your body. So the basis for the spiritual life in the church age 
is a unique uh, spiritual way of life produced by the supernatural power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, with that as background, we understand that a major shift is taking place. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law was a primary issue, especially or primarily and exclusively in the life of Israel. But now the Mosaic Law is nullified. It has been fulfilled in Christ who is the end of the law. So what's happening here? Obviously something has changed and this is the struggle that is taking place in these believers in the early church age. There's what's called a dispensational change. Here's the word, dispensational, D-I-S-P-E-N-S-A-T-I-O-N-A-L. Dispensational. There is a dispensational change. So in order to understand the background of this, which is so very important to understanding uh, the New Testament, we're going to just survey the doctrine of dispensation this morning. You need to understand this to understand the Bible. You see, what happens is there are two, since the Protestant Reformation, there are basically, there's a couple of others, but just for ease of communication this morning, there are basically two broad systems of interpretation that have dominated. There is the dispensational system and there is the system of covenant theology. There is also the system of Lutheran theology, which is a little different, but for all practical purposes, in in terms of the subject we're talking about, it falls under the same category of error that covenant theology falls into. To understand this, give you a little historical background. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany. Now, he was a Roman Catholic priest, and he had been, there had been a lot of problems with uh, uh, selling the sale of indulgences in, in uh, Germany and abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, and through his study of Romans and Galatians, he understood that people were justified by faith alone and not by works. So he wants to debate this. And this was the standard operating procedure is that what you would do if you wanted to have a debate about something, you would go to the community bulletin board. Not the BBS on the uh, Internet, but you would go to the community bulletin board, which was the front door of the church. And if you wanted to discuss an issue, you would take it and you would nail it to the door. That's the bulletin board. So he announces, come one, come all, let's have a debate over the relationship of faith and work. And that began the Protestant Reformation. But the emphasis was on soteriology. Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, pure grace. It's a free gift. Well, the Roman Catholic Church countered in what's called the Counter-Reformation with the charge, well, if you're going to teach that people are saved by grace, they'll take advantage of that and they'll just say, oh, I believe in Jesus and then they're saved and then they'll just live like the devil and they'll live in all kinds of sin. And there's no basis for that. And so in order to defend themselves against this charge of antinomianism, rather than saying, well, yes, that might happen, but God will take care of it and discipline them, that is not a a correct deduction and they would be wrong if they lived that way. Instead of carrying through the principle of grace into the... Law still became a major issue in covenant theology and in most Protestant denominations the way to spiritual, spiritual life is on the basis of morality and the Ten Commandments. 
That's how we got there historically. Then, under the dispensational theology, as it was uh, developed in the following years, beginning in the late 1600s and up to its clear articulation by John Nelson Darby in the beginning in the late 1830s, there was a recognition that there was a distinction in the Bible between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And this is the critical issue in dispensational thought, is that God has one set of, of guidelines and has a specific plan and covenants to the nation Israel, which were literally given in the Old Testament and will be literally fulfilled at some future date, and that the church is not the spiritual replacement of Israel. That's what happens in covenant theology. The church is the new Israel. The church is the spiritual replacement of Israel. So that uh, Israel, because they rejected Christ, is taken out of the picture and replaced by the church. That's not dispensational thought. Dispensational theology says that God stopped the plan for Israel for a time, but He still has more in store for Israel in the future and will fulfill all their covenants literally. And there is sort of a parenthesis in history that was not prophesied in the Old Testament, that there is something unique going on in the present age, and that is the church age, and so that the church age is made up of a unique people of God where race, ethnic distinctions are no longer an issue. There is no longer any junior Greek, male nor female, bond nor slave, all are one in the, per, in the body, or in, one in Christ. Positional truth. And that's church, um, the church, that there is this distinction between Israel and the church. And that is the essence of dispensational thought. There are some other things that relate to it, but for our purposes this morning, that's all we're going to cover is the idea that the core issue is a distinction between Israel and the church. And that means that the spiritual life of the church age is a unique spiritual life. That the Christian way of life is uniquely based on the power of the Holy Spirit who did not indwell, there was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there was no filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The spiritual life in the Old Testament was based exclusively on the faith rest drill. There were certain limitations to their spiritual life in the Old Testament because of that. But in the New Testament we have the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who guides us, who empowers us, who produces fruit in our lives, and who transforms our character into the image and glory of Jesus Christ. So that it makes the, the spiritual life of the church age unique. Its precedent, therefore, is not found in, in the Old Testament. You do not find the basis, the precedent, for the New Testament spiritual life in the Old Testament spiritual life. Where do you find it? You find it in the person of Jesus Christ and in His spiritual life on the earth. So what does all this mean? Well, let's just back down to some basics and get some definitions before we go any further. Definition for dispensation. We're going to look at a couple of key words, key passages. Turn with me to Acts 1-7. Acts 1-7. We're just going to bounce around a little bit because I want you to see some things, tie things together in terms of doing a, a, a biblical overview here. Acts 1-7, Jesus is literally on the verge of His ascension. 
final instructions to the apostles before he goes to the right hand of God the Father. And they ask him a question. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They are expecting at any moment for him as the Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament promises that Israel would have a glorious kingdom. Is it at this time? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now the word for times in the Greek is chronos. C-H-R-O-N-O-S. Epoch is kairos. Kairos. K-A-I-R-O-S. Now, the first refers to a succession of events. Chronos refers to the succession of events, one following the other, the order of those events. Kairos relates to the uh, uh, breakdown within those uh, those time frames, the the relationship of events one to another. What this tells us is that in terms of God's plan for human history, that he has certain chronological distinctives. That's the first element we need to establish in terms of our of our desig- of our of our subject is that God, in His plan for human history, has established certain chronological distinctives. There are different ages related to different purposes. Now, at this time, Jesus says to His apostles, "It is not for you to know time." or epics, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. He's not going to give that revelation at that point in time. Now, some years later, when the Apostle Paul writes his epistle to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, he says to them, now as to the times and epochs, same verbiage as in the Greek, as in Acts 1.7, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Implication? I gave you complete instructions about times and epochs when I was with you. So you don't need me to write any more to you. So information about these chronological distinctives in human history were revealed by the Apostle Paul. Jesus didn't tell the apostles that on the day of Pentecost or preceding the day of Pentecost because the timing wasn't right. He had reserved that information to be revealed through the Apostle Paul uh, two or three decades later. So at this point, we understand that God has laid out certain chronological divisions in human history. Now, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. From Acts, we go from Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Let's just, take, to pick up the context, let's start in verse 9. It seems to make a little more sense. This whole section from Ephesians 1, verse 3, down through the end of the chapter is one sentence in the original Greek. 
your English interpreters have generally broken it down into two or three sentences in order to um, try to make things a little more clear, but it's one of the longest sentences in any language. It's very, very complex and complicated. He, that is God the Father, made known to us the mystery, that is, the previously undisclosed uh, categories of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is, in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. The first phrase there, with a view to an administration. Now, the Greek word here for administration is the word oikonomos. O, this should be a soft breathing mark, O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Now, let's break this down into its etymological parts. The first word is oikos. O-I-K-O-S is the Greek word, and that's the standard word for house. second word is namos, which is the standard word for law or rule. So it came to mean, uh, basic lexical meaning or etymological meaning is house law or house rule. And it came to refer to the steward or administrator in a large household, what we would call the manager. The manager of a company or corporation would be called an oikonomos, the, the manager, the administrator of that, that company. Put manager up here. In the King James Version, this word was translated dispensation with a view to the dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. And this is that dispensation. Now, the second word we need to notice here is the word fullness. Fullness is in the Greek is the word pleroma. And we saw last Sunday in the second hour that this is a very critical word for understanding the role of Christ as the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. That Colossians 1.9 says that in Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Pleroma. Fullness. So that in Christ you have full, complete deity. Then in Ephesians, we're told over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So what this relates to is you have the fullness of God in Christ and then this same fullness is to be displayed in the life of the believer so that pleroma becomes a technical term for the spiritually mature believer. All of this connected. And to get there, you have to do it through the unique spiritual life of the church age which is based on God the Holy Spirit. Now, the role of God the Holy Spirit makes this a unique age, a unique dispensation, so that this same word is used to relate to that. It is the dispensation of Pleroma. Does that make sense? I'll make sure you follow me here. It is the dispensation of the age of Pleroma because believers are going to be able to achieve completion in the spiritual life and maturity which means they participate in the pleroma of God in terms of the full character of Christ, which we've already seen 
in Galatians is speaking of uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit produces in our life to reflect the character of Christ. So this is that dispensation. Now back to our basic word meaning, a steward or administrator. So a house. A house has a certain set of rules and regulations. For example, when you grew up in your house as a, as a child, your parents had a set of house laws. Those were the rules you had to follow as a child. When you perhaps were older, I had this experience after college and teaching school for a couple of years. I decided to live at home for a year before I went to seminary to save money. When I went back home to live with my parents, there was a whole different set of house laws because now I was a 24, 23, 22-year-old adult and I had been living out on my own for some time. Uh, the house law, the administration changed. Sometimes you may go, you may work for a company or a corporation and they get bought out by another corporation. And so the management changes. Certain rules stay the same. Other rules change. The house law shifts. You go from one administration to another administration. We see that uh, politically. We have one uh, man elected as president. He brings in his coterie of advisors, and they're all oriented in one particular direction. And so the administration passes policies towards those ends. And then a few years later, that administration is, leaves office, and another administration comes in with another group of advisors, another group of plans and procedures, and perhaps goes in a different direction. A lot of things remain the same, but some things change. Okay, that's what a dispensation is. A dispensation then refers to God's management of human history. The divine management of human history then through various uh, periods of time. And that in these periods of time, some things stay the same. Salvation is always the same. Faith alone in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, they did not know Jesus Christ under the name Jesus Christ. They knew Him under the name Yahweh, or Yahweh Elohim, or Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. But the name uh, Jesus Christ was not revealed in the Old Testament. But they knew that God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and would take care of the sin problem for mankind. So they looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise. And they trusted in Christ by means of a future apprehension of that truth that God would in the future supply that solution. So they looked forward to it. It was still faith alone in Christ alone. The New Testament, still faith alone in Christ alone. But some things are different. In the Old Testament, there was, an, especially in the age of Israel, there is an emphasis on ritual, an emphasis on sacrifice and temple ritual, tabernacle ritual, an external priesthood. That, by the way, was not based upon spirituality. You read through all of the requirements for Levitical priests in Leviticus. And there are a lot of physical requirements. They can't uh, have external blemishes. They can't have certain diseases. They can't uh, have a number of other uh, physical problems related to them, be leprous or anything like that. But you can read long and hard, and there are no qualifications for their spirituality for their morality, or even that they be saved, regenerated. No requirement for that whatsoever. So the priesthood of Israel could be legitimately functioning as priests and not be believers, regenerate believers. 
because the emphasis was what they were teaching externally. In the New Testament, we have a different priesthood, a priesthood that's not based upon one's uh, tribal heritage, but it's based upon regeneration. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a royal priest to God forever and ever, and you have direct access to God, and there is no external priesthood during the church age. So some things are the same, and other things differ. And it's very important to understand this, because this is why so many passages get misinterpreted and mishandled and people get confused is because they go into the Old Testament and they take passages that are different for the church age and they try to make them the same. So you ha- this is fundamental. To understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the whole concept of dispensation. So let me give you a definition for dispensation. A dispensation is a period of human history expressed in terms of divine revelation. That means God demarcates the beginning and the end of that time period by revelation. There's going to be some word from God to indicate the beginning and the end, that something has changed. We're seeing that with with Peter. Peter sees this vision from God lowering the animals. Now it's all clean. God is specifically revealing time and again that there are these, this change is taking place. The period of human history expressed in terms of divine revelation. Secondly, history is a sequence of divine administrations divided into eras or ages, each having unique characteristics as well as certain functions in common with other ages. So it's a sequence of divine administrations divided then into various eras or ages And some things remain the same from age to age, and some things are going to differ. And then third, these consecutive eras reflect the unfolding of God's plan for mankind and constitute the divine viewpoint of human history and the theological interpretation of history. So that if you do not have an understanding of dispensations, To that degree, you will misunderstand and misinterpret all of human history. These consecutive eras reflect the unfolding of God's plan for mankind. They constitute the divine viewpoint of human history and the theological interpretation of history. Now, what is it that demarcates these dispensational shifts? And that brings in another important concept throughout the Bible and which will become a very important concept in our coming studies of Galatians chapter 3 and 4 and that is the entire subject of covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant, very simply put, is a contract in terms of our common Understanding. It's a contract between two parties. Party of the first part and party of the second part. Now there are two kinds of contracts, two kinds of covenants. There are unconditional covenants. And there are conditional covenants. In an unconditional covenant, God, who is the party of the first part, makes a sovereign decision to obligate himself 
in grace to man or a man who's the party of the second part. And nothing is dependent upon the party of the second part. So in an unconditional contract, God in grace obligates himself to do certain things for the party of the second part and it's not dependent upon anything, any behavior, any actions, any attitudes whatsoever on the part of the party of the second part. God is going, it's a free gift in other words. That God obligates himself to. Now sometimes when you're talking with some folks from some backgrounds, they say, well, I'm not going to get into the Bible and say this about God or that about God because that's putting God in a box. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say that. You just put God in a box. No, I'm not putting God in a box. God is putting God in a box. God is the one who is saying, this is the way I am going to operate and function during this period of time. And the issue is, what has God said about how he is going to function in human history? As soon as somebody says, well, you're putting God in a box there, operating on some kind of autonomous principle of interpretation based upon liver quiver or I don't know what, whatever makes them feel good at the time. In an unconditional covenant, God obligates himself to certain actions to bless man, and it's based not on human behavior, but on God's own character. Okay? A conditional covenant is a covenant wherein God is party of the first part, promises to bless the party of the second part on, on the basis of certain conditions fulfilled by the party of the second part. There's only one conditional covenant in the Bible, and that is the Mosaic Covenant. And God said to Israel, if you fulfill these mandates and do what I tell you to do, then I will bless you and prosper you as a nation. If you do not obey these mandates and, and precepts and laws and ordinances that I'm giving you, then you, I, I will disperse you as a nation and I will discipline you and I will curse you as a nation. So the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. It was also temporal. It was only for a specified period of time beginning from Mount Sinai down through the death of Christ when Christ was the end of the law. So that's the definition of a contract or covenant and let's see how this works itself out in human history. Human history begins with the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter uh, one, and it's further developed in Genesis chapter 2. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and we're just going to follow our way through to understand these covenants. Genesis 2.17 is the first covenant, first contract. Now, this is a very abbreviated form of the contract. There are some very excellent studies that have been done in the last 30 or 40 years on contracts and treaty forms. That's another way they term they used in Old Testament, ancient, the ancient Near Eastern world, was they referred to covenants as treaties. A treaty, of course, is a contract between one nation and another nation, uh, or a, a treaty between two people. And they have this, one of the things that we've discovered is that these treaties or contracts uh, used a certain technical vocabulary and followed a certain literary form. Just as today, if you go out and you purchase a house, or you sell a house, or you buy a car, 
you're going to get a contract. And that contract is pretty much a boilerplate contract, and there's a few blanks in there for the price, for taxes, for owner's name, and dates, and things like that. But 98% of the verbiage is the same from one contract to another. Each contract has its own set form and its own type of terminology. Well, that's what we're talking about here, is that there are certain terms that are used. And God sort of initialized human vocabulary we've seen several times. In Genesis 1, he called the the, uh, uh, the darkness night and the light day, and he named certain, certain uh, other aspects of creation and then turned it over to man to continue that and develop those thoughts out. And man did so... Um, and I think that human treaties and human contracts reflected certain things that were evident from the very beginning. Now, I just noticed we're about out of time, so I better end here. And next time we'll start by looking at these various contracts and covenants throughout human history and how they set the framework for understanding dispensations with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning to understand your word and to get this wonderful overview of human history that you have continually worked in history to uh, reveal your will to mankind and that throughout history we see your grace. The grace is not something unique to this age. It is something that is more developed and more understood in this age. And we thank you for the uniqueness of this church age in which we live in our incredible spiritual life and all the fantastic assets that you have provided for us. We pray as we continue this study that we will come to grasp and understand all that you have done for us, that we may be motivated to live for you and to glorify you and to learn everything we can about you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.